Father, your plan for this world goes so far beyond anything that we can imagine. Um, you're working in the affairs of man in ways that are bigger than we could ever dream um, is astounding to us. And what is also amazing is your workings in ways that are smaller than we even know uh, exist. Lord, you um, are fully knowledgeable of the heart's desires and thoughts of minds um, of every person on this planet. And you're fully in control of the movements um, of nations and rulers. Reminded again of that in Daniel 11 as we have been throughout Daniel. And we pray, Lord God, that even as we touch on some of the same themes that have been running through Daniel, that you would give us a fresh word for that, uh, that we are anxious about this morning, uh, for that that we're concerned about or that we are um, apathetic about in our lives. Those areas that you want to take from the back of our mind that maybe weigh on us without us even knowing it and bring it under your light of who you are and allow us to see it for what it is and allow us to see your glory in it and how you can, will, and desire to work and move in it, Father. We just pray, Lord, that you would take this Daniel 11 and allow us to see our lives differently through it. Just pray these, Lord, things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we found Daniel in Daniel 10. He was amazed. He was struck powerless. And he was dismayed by a vision. This vision came after his fervent prayer and fasting concerning the fate of his people Israel. You might recall that he was discouraged to know that the building of the temple in Jerusalem had come to a standstill. He was likely seeking the Lord in response to this news. Daniel learned from an angelic messenger that God was very much at work in the situation in Jerusalem. In fact, he learned about the spiritual warfare that was being waged in the, in the courts of Persia concerning Israel. And I hope you were encouraged to, get, to gain perspective when it comes to God's will being accomplished on earth. God has his forces on the job. And his work is being accomplished behind the scenes, if you will. If you recall, Daniel opened chapter 10 with a summary statement in verse 1. He said, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he, he, being Daniel, understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So Daniel summarizes his experience of chapters 10 through 12 as being made up of a vision and a word concerning a war. He also explains that he is confident of his understanding of the vision and the word of interpretation he received. Daniel 11, which we are looking at today, is the bulk of that word of interpretation. The words that we will be reading here 
this morning are the words of the angel and the word of interpretation then that the angel has brought to Daniel. My understanding of verses 1 through 35 is that they're describing Israel's future prior to the church age. So when I say Israel's future, we're talking about Israel's future from Daniel's perspective, but it's Israel's history from our perspective. Okay, so we're here in the portion verses 1 through 35, which are Israel's future for Daniel prior to the church age. Just a re as a review, the church age as it appears in the visions of Daniel is a gap in which nothing is described in terms of the visions that are given to Daniel. This is because Daniel is made aware of God's dealing with Israel as his exclusive people. God's dealing with Daniel's people, Israel, is laid out as being 70 weeks of years, or 490 years. Recall that the 70 weeks is also de described as being 69 weeks plus one week remaining, which will be after the church age. So, by prior to the church age, I'm speaking of Israel as God's people from the year 444 B.C., when the decree went out from King Cyrus to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That from being 444 B.C. to Christ's triumphal entry 483 years later is that 69 weeks of Daniel. And by after the church age, I'm speaking of Israel as God's people. After the rapture of the church, that last week, that last seven years, which we know referred to in scriptures as years of tribulation. So as mentioned last week, Daniel threw things, thought things were looking up when the temple was being constructed. But with that construction, that construction halted. He was brought to prayerfully searching out what this meant for his people. So this brings us to Israel's future under Persia. The words described by the angel to Daniel in answer to his seeking out. What does this mean? So in verse 2 we read, And now I will show you the you being Daniel, the angel speaking to Daniel, I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall rise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become stronger through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So Daniel learns that there are three more kings who will reign over the Persian Empire. The fourth ruler of these will be Xerxes. And he would be the first to wage a campaign of war against the nation of Greece. His armies are defeated at the Battle of Salamis in year 480 B.C. And this battle is one of the dominoes that falls leading to the Greek domination of the Persian Empire and the rest of that surrounding world just 150 years later after this battle. So the angel speaking to Daniel moves into Israel's future under Greece. We see this in verses 3 through verses 35. Sorry that we're kind of jumping right into it this morning. We have a 45 verse chapter. 
but we'll be skipping over much of it, don't worry. But in this vision, Greece dominates the future of Daniel's people, Israel. There would be the reign of the Romans over the nation of Israel beginning in 63 B.C., just 63 or so years prior to the birth of Christ. But the Roman Empire is not the concern of this vision which is being explained for Daniel. It's the Greek Empire that will usher in Israel's greatest challenge prior to Christ, that being Antiochus Epiphanes, as we learned about. He is the one who is foreshadowed by the, the, what Daniel calls the prince who is to come, being the Antichrist. So Antiochus Epiphanes is a type of the Antichrist who is the prince who is to come. And that's why Daniel, all of this is leading up to um, what is going to be going on during the rule of this character that starts in verse 31, I believe. So within this subpoint of Israel's future under Greece, we have here a sub-subpoint of the rise of Greece in verses 3 through 4. Alright, so we're breaking it down here. It says, Then a mighty king shall rise, this being a king of Greece, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills, and as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. All right, here's a little quiz from Daniel here. Um, who's this describing? Kingdom that rises, then he's broken, broken up into four directions. Yeah, Alexander the Great. Okay, people are following with us here, Daniel. Okay, so we know about Greece's domination of the Middle East beginning under the leadership of Alexander the Great. He's described as being the mighty king who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. We've seen in others of Daniel's visions that his kingdom is described as being broken and divided into four parts. This, of course, happens in the prime of his career as king, just after, just into his uh, third decade of life, with no posterity to give it to after it's broken up. On his deathbed, Alexander was asked to whom his empire should be given. And his response was, to the strongest. To the strongest. The first century B.C. historian, Diodorus, I'm going to kill this name, Sicilus, this historian wrote, he added, and these were his last words, that all of his leading friends would stage a vast contest in honor of his funeral. So in honor of himself, the historian writes that Alexander the Great wanted there to be a great war to which his friends would try to kill each other and divide up his empire. What a friend. Uh, Ron Blue wrote a book once um, describing inheritances and he called it splitting heirs. And I think this was kind of Alexander's idea as well. But so... It was the will of Alexander that his empire be divided by warfare. But I want to tell you, his desire was guided by the God 
who gave the word to Daniel here 200 years earlier. And who's described this God by Isaiah 44, 7. When he says of himself, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Meaning, let him proclaim the future. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed the ancient, an ancient people. Let him declare what is to come. And what will happen. Predicting and guiding what is to come is a large proof of Jehovah as the only God. It's what he likes to use. It's a tool in his toolbox that he pulls out again and again in the Old Testament. We've seen that in the book of Daniel. And we'll see it in intense detail this morning. God's predictions surrounding Alexander's death are nothing compared to the detail that are found in verses 5 through 35. Here we find the warring Greek dynasties. The maneuvers between two particular kings covers 140 years of conflict here in verses 5 through 35. The parties are referred to as the kings of the north and south because they represent Greek dynasties that controlled certain areas of the Middle East. We're not going to go through all of verses 5 through 35, don't worry. This morning is... It, but we don't necessarily need to do that to get their point. I do want you to see the detail, though, by which God planned out the century and a half of this Greek soap opera. We should define first these kings of the south and of the north, okay? So let's go to geography class here. Um, they're called the kings of the north and the kings of the south. You the pink here being representing the king of the south because of their relationship to Israel. The south being the area of Egypt and the Sinai. The north being the area of Syria and Asia Minor. Now, this map shows the division of this area soon after um, Alexander the Great's death, but it will change. So think of the region as being like a basketball court. We're in March Madness here, right? Um, with that basketball court running north and south, okay? Israel would be half court. And it changes possessions through these 140 years of conflict and history. So the time of verse 5 picks up here soon after Alexander's empire has been divided among his four generals. So verse 5 reads, The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, then he shall rule, and his authority shall be, shall be a great authority. Now, all of verses 5 through 35, I've um, laid out in a chart, which you can, I've, I've made 20 copies of them, that you can pick up on the back table there. Um, and that chart is simply taking the verses of Scripture that refer to specific events and then taking simply the notes from the ESV study Bible and putting them next to it, and thereby you can see the detail of the future predictions and history as we know it playing those out. But let me just walk through the first of these in verse 5. And what I have here, I have simply the same notes 
that's there on that chart. So if you'll see here, it says the king of the south, which I've kind of color-coordinated them here for you. Um, king of the south here in pink and uh, representing um, down here. The major three generals that divided up Alexander's territory originally would be Antigonus here covering Asia Minor over into Mesopotamia and Seleucus which covers from Babylon over toward um, against India and Ptolemy which was given as I said the, the area of the Sinai and Egypt and you'll see here this is the area of Israel and Jerusalem right here so just looking at this Ptolemy the king of the south was a very capable general under Alexander who became ruler of Egypt about the same time Seleucus the king of the north now he doesn't look like the king of the north in this but that's going to change the king of the north he started out as a lesser general under Alexander and was given Babylon to rule and that stretches over to India but one of the other generals, Antigonus, took over Babylon and caused Seleucus to flee. He fled south to Ptolemy in Egypt and served under him. Thus, he was for a short time one of the king of the south's princes. And that's why verse 5 says, The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. Now Antigonus, in a, the, a battle in Gaza in 312, Antigonus was defeated and killed. And Seleucus returned to Babylon to retake his former authority. And what became soon after that battle, which killed, which killed Antigonus, was the present map that you see here, where Seleucus, the empire of Seleucus, now that's just kind of the family name. Uh, the original general but it's his descendants that will be over the 140 years covered through verses 5 through 35 his descendants are constantly referred to as the king of the north and, this, and Ptolemy's descendants are referred to as the king of the south here to the south so this king of the north Seleucus increased significantly in power and took over the areas of Babylon, Syria, and Media, which you see there, so that he was stronger than Ptolemy, uh, the original king of the south. So we'll just go one more scene into this Greek tragedy that God wrote over 200 years prior to its existence. We'll step into verse 6 here. Okay? It says, After some years, they shall make an alliance, meaning the king of the south and the king of the north. They shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm, meaning the king of the north, that Seleucus descendant, the, he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. All right, so how this played out, as the ESV Study Bible Notes put it, says there was a constant conflict between the Ptolemaic Egyptian and the Seleucid kingdoms. But around 250 B.C., Ptolemy II 
the king of the south, attempted to make peace with Antiochus, the king of the north, that a descendant of Seleucus, by sending his daughter, Berenice, to marry him. So this is history being described. As Daniel had predicted, the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. Antiochus, this Seleucus, king of the north, then planned to divorce his wife, Laodice, and disinherit his sons so that he could marry Berenice and have a child who would then rule over the Seleucid kingdom. All the wives are like, oh, no, he didn't. Okay. But here, Laodice, this wife that was about to be kicked out, had her husband Antiochus and Berenice poisoned, fulfilling the words, she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. In the same year, Berenice's father, this Ptolemy, who sent her up there, he also died in Egypt. So here we see, 200 years earlier, or in this case, uh, more than that, Daniel is told this odd arrangement that uh, the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north. She shall not restrain the strength of her arm. And we get the opportunity to look back on history and see how that played out. We have here only, we've only read two verses here into the 31 verses that we've already, and we've already seen detailed predictions played out in history. The fact is that there are 100, over 135 prophecies, predictions, in just these 35 verses that will be specifically fil fulfilled in detail. And we have the privilege of reading about their fulfillments in our history books. I hope that you'll take the chart off the back table and be encouraged by them yourself. We can make more copies if we have to. But in chapter 8, we discussed at great length the rule of the Seleucid ruler Antiochus Epiphanes. As a major part of the coming future of Israel, he's discussed again in verses 25 through 35 of chapter 11. So we'll pick up with this king of the north in verse 31. It says, Forces from him, being into Antiochus Epiphanes, shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So here almost a hundred years later from this whole deal with Berenice and, and this king of the north and his plan that he was going to divorce his wife Laodice and she ends up poisoning the both of them. Uh, almost a hundred years later we learned and we talked about before his descendant Antiochus Epiphanes came to Israel after fighting against the king of the south in 167 BC. He's furious over his defeat in Egypt and over Israel's stiff-necked unwillingness and resistance to his rule. He tries to convert the temple of Jerusalem into the temple of one of his gods, most likely Zeus. And he desecrates the temple with an abomination, most likely sacrificing a pig on its altar. Those who compromise are rewarded, but those who remain faithful fight against his rule. These probably, these including most, mostly the family of the Maccabees, 
which leads to the Maccabean revolt. So verse 32 picks up the, descri the description of what will be the fate of the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea at that time. So verse 33 reads, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive little, a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The impact of their faithfulness, those who stand up against Antiochus Epiphanes, is foretold as making many understand. Much of what is referenced in these verses are the, the refining effects of persecution and that it often has for God's people. The growth from persecution is something that is mostly foreign to us as Christians in America. But if you'll notice, these verses seem to close up the description of the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes. The impact of his cruelty is described. And there's even a reference to the end of time. I believe this is because the explanation will jump to being mainly talking about Antiochus to mainly about the Antichrist in the next verse. Antiochus fulfilled all of what is described in verses 25 through 35. But he did not meet all of the description of 36 through 45, which we'll look at. This, among other reasons, is why I believe that verse 36 begins to describe Israel's future after the church age. So we see that in verses 36 and into chapter 12. You might be thinking, why would the angel's explanation just jump over 2,200 years or so of church history. Recall again that he laid out the framework of the prophecies of Daniel in chapter 9 with the 70 weeks of years. Recall that these 490 years have to do with Israel. So it's not surprising that the word of the angel jumps to the rule of the clearest type of Antichrist being Antiochus Epiphanes, to the discussion of the Antichrist himself. Jumps into the tribulation period here, that last of the 70 weeks. So we have here, now I notice up here that in my notes it says the king described, in your notes it says the Antichrist described, just a little discrepancy on my part. But in verses 36 through 39 we read about this Antichrist described coming in the future. The Daniels, the explanation jumps to now this 70th week. It says, And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper until the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now, this, much of this fits 
the description of Antiochus Epiphanes, but it doesn't, his life didn't, his decisions and his actions didn't go as far as this description describes. For instance, he sets up tribute to his gods, most likely Zeus in Jerusalem, but the Antichrist will set himself up as God. We've discussed the, the Antichrist at length in past sermons. You'll recall that we learned that in some way he will come from the fourth empire, which is the empire of Rome. We also learned that the final rise of the and fall of the Antichrist will lead to the literal rule of Christ on earth. So we're going to move quickly through the details here in verses 36 through 45. But much of our understanding of his power, his pride, his prestige came from these verses. So we, here we see how the Antichrist truly will be the devil's greatest achievement and most astute disciple. He's self-willed. He's self-exalting. Even beyond the gods that he grew up respecting. His pinnacle achievement will be installing himself as God. Magnifying himself above all others. So we pick up in verse 38. It says, he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. Meaning, instead of the gods of his fathers. A God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor and with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses, with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him, shall load, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. The Antichrist will rule with military might. We learn from Revelation 13 that he will cause people to worship Satan who's referred to as the dragon. That's because it's the dragon that gives him his power to rule, we learn about in Revelation 13. His position will make him wealthy and influential, even to the point that he will be, will be given the right to divide out the land. It's very likely that this would involve mainly the minerals that would be precious and few during the end times. Despite his power in verse 45, 40 through 45, we'll find that he will not experience peaceful submission of all of the nations throughout his seven-year reign. Of course, Revelation tells us of a battle of Armageddon that will happen among the, the, the nations of the earth during that time. And that's pointed to likely here as we see the Antichrist attacked his the Antichrist um, embattled here in verses four, 40 through 45. It says, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. Now, what we're tempted to do in reading this... and you know, I'm sorry, this is a tough section of verses to go through on the night we lose an hour of sleep beforehand, isn't it? I promise you'll be blessed. Well, if you're open to it, I guess. So, 
What we're tempted to do here by reading these verses is to see uh, the king of the north as we did before. When he was describing the, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires with Israel in between. In, but in these verses, um, here is the prediction of the 70th week, the tribulation week. We have three political figures involved here. Not just the two. If you'll notice, there's a king of the south, which we'll understand soon as being based in Egypt. There's a king of the north, which we're not told much about. Some commentators relate it to Gog and Magog of Revelation. And there's a person referred to with the pronouns of him and he. And this person, I believe, is the Antichrist being described. So his is being attacked by both the king of the south and the king of the north. So while the Antichrist covenant is made with Israel, he's not necessarily living in Israel during this time. In fact, we'll see that later he, it's later that he establishes his dwelling there. So we read that his prized possession, the land of Israel, is attacked once again from the, from the north and from the south. And this causes the Antichrist to sweep into the land in a way here that's being described as coming into countries, overflowing and passing through. Many would expect that maybe as some part of the EU or maybe as a part of the uh, Holy Roman Empire of Europe, that that is where he is stationed during this time prior to the attack, prior to his moving into Israel. So that's why it describes here in verse 41. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Who? Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Egypt describing the location of the king of the south. So we see that he will reinstate, the Antichrist will reinstate himself as the overpowering ruler of the Middle East. So if, and if you've ever wondered what's the role of the Arab nations during the end times, we're probably seeing it here in these verses. Edom and Moab and the Ammonites are what is today the nation of Jordan, contained within that area, which is more tolerant of Israel. So we can see how this area might be affected less by the Antichrist coming back in and kind of kind of uh, reasserting himself. We've also seen as of recently the rise of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt as an aggressive form of Islam gaining power there. You could see how that could come into play very soon in the end times. This battle foretold may be describing how opportunistic Islamic nations of North Africa will be dealt with. I got moved too many notes over here. Yep, I did. So we see that even more so in verse 43 as it says, He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Cushites, Cushites being the area of Ethiopia, shall follow in his train. Cush, Cushites could actually describe um, the area over into Saudi Arabia as well. 
So one thing is for certain, the Antichrist will only further enrich himself and gain even more power at this point. But a rumbling from the east will cause him to maneuver himself into Jerusalem for good. We pick up in verse 44. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him. And he shall go out with a great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, this being there in Jerusalem. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. But we'll see, he's not coming to his end because of these nations that are now coming against him. He shall come to his end for another reason. The rumblings from the east could likely be the military of China, which would fit the army of 200 million, described in Revelation 9.16. I read in a Military Policy Watch article this week that describes China's standing army of being at least 280 million. That's their standing army. I also read about how China has completely modernized an ancient road that leads from their nation through into Pakistan. The seven-year reign of the Antichrist is plenty of time for China to ready and roll out 200 million soldiers. Verses 44 through 45 are likely describing movements of military forces which will lead up to the battle of Armageddon described in Revelation 16. This battle will end with the arrival of our Lord as described in Zechariah 14.4. On that day, His feet, being Christ, shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. Jesus' rival will not be meek and mild like his birth as a baby was. He will show up and knock heads despite all of the world's military strength being present. With Christ's arrival, the persecution will stop and the rightful king of the earth will sit on his throne. And this is why the Antichrist at this point is described as yet, his, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. I'm just going to give you a teaser for next week, though. Because, I mean, this is a lot of conflict. and What's God doing during this time? We'll learn about the deliverance of God's people next week. Verse, 12, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, speaking to Daniel about his people Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Now, as we transition here into principles, we, it's two principles we can gain from um, here in Daniel 11 and thank you for your studiousness I think that's why I kind of dressed as a professor today um, teenagers have an unfortunate stigma of not making the best decisions 
Okay, nothing against you guys. But, you know, you're growing into these adult bodies. And despite what you think, as teenagers, we don't always consider the consequences. You know, and have excellent foresight. Um, as a teenager, I didn't blow the curve in this area, um, in the choices. My choices didn't have a whole lot of good foresight um, at times. Thinking about one evening shortly after getting my license, my kids have been, like, bugging me to share this story. Um, I was taking a girl home from the school function, and I decided I'd be a good kid and bring the car home gassed up. So I pulled up to the local gas station and um, saw that, uh, opened my door up and quickly saw, oh, this is the wrong gas pump. I need to move to a different one. Well, having this girl in the car, um, I probably wanted to kind of impress her with my driving skills. And so with the door still open, seeing that it was going to clear the gas pump just fine, I decided I would back up by kind of looking out the door, you know, well, what in my um, extensive calculations uh, as a teenager, I failed to take into account those little yellow poles around the gas pumps. And to my horror, as I'm starting to back up, I hear this and look over and see that the, my driver's side door is being opened up unnaturally beyond the extent of its hinges. Being that I wanted this to stop, I went to press my foot on the brake, but often what happens, I pressed it on the gas. <laughs> Unfortunately as well, this was a gas station that had all of its pumps in one line. And there must have been about 10 of these poles down that entire line. Thankfully, there was no one behind me. But I proceeded to jam on the gas and in horror watched my door hit every single one of those stupid yellow poles and bounce between the pole and the front fender. Thudum, 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 all the way down the line. And get to the end and just staring at it like, what on earth did I just do? How could I know that would happen? As followers of Christ, we will see here that we can have confidence in God's sovereign rule. God's foresight is perfect. Because he is perfectly at work in the affairs of mankind. It's not just that he sees the future. He's at work in the future. We should have confidence in God's sovereign rule. First reason is because his rule over history. That's what we get to see here in Daniel 11. That's what I've bored you to death with here in Daniel 11. But that we get to see his sovereign rule in history. I hope that you're encouraged by that. I hope you'll take that chart and, and look through it and see it with amazement the detail of what's predicted and how it played out in history. We're reminded in Isaiah 44 again. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed the ancient people. Let him declare what is to come and what will happen. No one can but him. We're brought back to God's statement in Isaiah as well as in other places. God likes to prove himself. 
by proclaiming things to come and making them happen, as he said. And of course, we see this in a big way predicted in Daniel 11. As I've mentioned, we should be even more encouraged to live for God than Daniel even was. Daniel was encouraged because God predicted the future. We've seen the undeniable evidence that God has controlled the past that was future to Daniel. Daniel reminds us that God is and always has been in control of the nations of the earth. More importantly, we're reminded by Scripture that God is at work for His glory and for our good. This brings us naturally back, as it has a few times in Daniel, to Romans 8, 28-29, where God tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I know that we've been drawn back to these verses several times. They're both reassuring and inspiring for us to focus on what our lives should be about. Face it, though. The fact that God is in control of the nations of the world, it's reassuring, but it's still lacking some comfort in my flesh. Think of God's control of the nations being like the, the huge cogs that are at work in Big Ben. And I'm talking about the clock in London, not the quarterback. But those huge cogs there that are at work in this huge clock, we're hopeful that the nations of the world, we're glad that, that they're set in place like those huge cogs and at work. But we're still concerned that we might get squashed between those cogs like an ill-fated London mouse. But we can rest assured of the promise in verse 29, the good of those who have been called according to God's purposes is that we'll be made more like Christ. I may get squashed by persecution or illness or hardship or a heavy season of my teenager's commitments, but God still has a plan on it all to conform me to the image of Christ. And if I remember correctly, that looks a little something like this. Being crucified. For his glory. For those who, whose hearts are set rightly on desiring to please God. This is good news. But like Jack Sparrow's compass in the movie Pirates of the Caribbean. Imagine that you have a compass that points where your heart wants to go. We're reminded from Daniel 11 that God is moving history like a ship according to his plans. If we're desiring God's glory to be, and being conformed to the image of Christ, we'll sit on that ship and we'll say, sail on. If we're mainly desiring comfort or pleasure or respect or acknowledgement or security or any number of other good things, but if that's the, the deepest of our desires at any cost, we'll sit on that ship and we'll say, turn the boat around, Lord. 
I didn't sign up for this direction you're taking. A major thing that Daniel has been teaching us is that our joy in following Christ does not boil down to if God is in control or not. He's in control. Our joy in following Christ boils down to if we want what God is about. His glory and our being conformed to Christ. Another story of my poor foresight as a teenager in driving cars happened on another evening. This time I was bringing my little brother home. And um, I decided to try to impress him with one of those, you know, action movie stops where they're going at like high speed and they come to a perfect stop right where they wanted to. And, and so I was driving down the little country road outside of our neighborhood at about 85 miles an hour and decided I'd jam on the brakes and come to a perfect, you know, I'd, of course I'll come to a perfect stop right where I want to, right? Well, this was also in the days before anti-lock brakes. So this car spins sideways one way, sideways the other, backwards for all I know. I, don't, I had my eyes closed and I was just gripping the wheel. You know, in God's grace, this road lined with trees, uh, we came to a stop in a muddy bank, totaling the car, which I was still paying on the door and fender for. No, that's okay. I did look at my brother and say, I'm Batman. <laughs> Thanks, Hannah. This brings us to our second reason why we can have confidence in God's sovereign rule, in his perfect foresight and his work, even though the foresight that we have is not. It's because of his rule over the future. As it was for Daniel, the future of our world is at stake. Daniel 11 has spoken to the days that lay before us. It says, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. And we're promised in verse 45, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. But I, and I believe that followers of Christ will be spared from this tribulation period. I won't go into that again. Explaining that, you can go back whichever past message that was but, but this doesn't mean that we should not have an interest in God's glory from that period in the future in fact the accuracy of God's plans for what Daniel's future was and our history should reassure us of our future with God he will also carry out our future just as he did according to the future of Daniel's people we're greatly reassured, assured again in Romans 8, verses 31, well actually 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
I love how the New Living Translation uh, words, verse 35, where it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The New Living Translation asks the question, Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble? In verse 36, Paul is quoting Psalm 44. In it, the psalmist is proclaiming his people's trust in God despite their tough circumstances. He's saying, we are dealing with what we are going through for your sake. By quoting Psalm 44, Paul is identifying with what should describe Christ's followers. Persecution for Christ's sake. Discomfort for Christ's sake. Risk for Christ's sake. As I said, the def a good definition of acting in faith would be if God doesn't show up, you fall flat on your face. For Christ's sake. So Romans 8 continues in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We talked last week about how the war that has been won is, is won even though there are many battles left to fight. According to verse 36... We are super conquerors in this war through Him who loved us, through our Savior God. The confidence of Daniel 11 proclaims that God is at work in these coming events and it is still proclaimed in the New Testament. As Christ's followers, we are God's people who cannot be separated from His love or from His plan. His loving plan cannot be derailed by the fallen angels and rulers of demons described in Daniel 10 and also here in verse 38 as nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers. When we are in Christ Jesus our Lord, we are set to go. We are boxed up in the Father's grace. We are sealed up by the Holy Spirit. And we are ready to be picked up by Jesus Christ. As God has shown himself to be true and faithful in the past, we can trust him to be the same in the future. That's Daniel 11 for us. I have the worship team come up as I close this in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for your testimony of how great and awesome and good and mighty and detailed your work is, your plan is, your power is, your intentions are for us in your grace and in who you are. Lord, I pray that as little ailments and frustrations and worries creep into our lives, that we wouldn't allow these things to steal away from us our joy and your glory in us realizing that you're in control, that you have it laid out, that you have a plan. 
Lord, I just pray that we would glorify you with trust and with faith and with desiring to be a part of what you're doing. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.